A film made in 2003 called The Magdalene Sisters told this true story about the Magdalene laundries, or sometimes they were referred to as the Magdalene asylums. And in these uh, laundries or asylums, there were these young women that were known as Maggies who were locked up there without trial, and they were sentenced to forced unpaid labor. Their crimes? Things like flirting with boys, becoming pregnant out of wedlock, or even being raped. You might suspect something like this and say Afghanistan under the Taliban, but you would be wrong if that's where you thought this happened. These laundries were operated under the Sisters of Mercy of the Catholic Church in Dublin, Ireland. Over 30,000 of these Maggies were forced to work in those laundries over the years. The last one closing as recently as 1996. In fact, the only reason that any of this came to light was because of a mass grave that was found at the last closing containing the corpses of 155 of these women. At a park in downtown Dublin, Ireland, a bench and a plaque memorialized the women who were forced into these uh, laundries. And on a trip to Dublin, author Philip Yancey sought to find that bench and the memorial plaque which honored these women. And he wrote about his experience. He said this. He said, Walking away from the humble memorial, I found myself reflecting not simply on their lives, but also on the sharp contrast between how Jesus treated moral failures and how we, his followers, often do. Where we shame, he elevates. Jesus saw in people not what they had been, but what they could be. Not their past, but their future. There's no place in the Bible that I think that is most clearly seen than in the passage that we're going to look at this morning. But, and I hope that you will hear me say this, I hope you'll pay attention to this. Many people refuse to believe that Jesus can see past their failures. And consequently, they live most of their lives in unnecessary shame and guilt and misery, even allowing their failures to become their very identity for the rest of their lives. I want to show you this morning why that happens, and I want to show you how you can live free of your worst failures. If you have a Bible with you, I'd like for you to turn with me in it to Mark chapter 14. If it's an electronic Bible, if it's an old school hard copy, it's fine. Either one, just turn to Mark chapter 14. We're going to begin reading in a moment at verse 66, Mark chapter 14 and verse uh, 66. For those of you who have been with us throughout this series on the last days of Jesus, um, I've been telling you it is Thursday night. It is still Thursday night. It is just hours before Jesus will be crucified on Friday. Jesus has been arrested and he has been uh, tried. We saw this last week. He's been tried by the religious leaders of Israel. It was really a kangaroo court, but still he's been tried and found guilty by the religious leaders of blasphemy. And as we pick up at verse 66, we're going to see a previous prediction that Jesus had made. We're going to see it come true. So I want to pick up the reading at verse 66. Those of you who are listening to us through our City Church app, we're glad that you're listening. Uh, Those of you who have a City Church app this morning on your smartphone, you can follow along on the notes uh, that are provided uh, on that app. Let's read from verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, 
one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. And again, Peter denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man that you're talking about. And immediately the the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And Peter broke down and wept. Of course, what makes this passage extraordinary is that earlier in the chapter, in verses 30 and 31, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, Jesus had predicted that Peter would disown him, and Peter refused to believe that he would disown Jesus. And yet, um, here we are. I don't know if it occurred to you or not, but because Mark puts this story of Peter's denial immediately after Jesus' trial by the religious leaders, which, as I said, we looked at last week, because of its position, Mark wants us to see Peter's denial in contrast to Jesus' trial. And here's what I mean. While Jesus is under fire inside, Peter warms himself by the fire outside. As Jesus confesses who he is under immense pressure and hostility that seals his fate, Peter capitulates under the gentlest of pressure, a servant girl, and he lies to save himself. Mark wants us to see the contrast between how Jesus handles his trial and how Peter handles his trial. And then there is the irony of all ironies here. It cannot be a coincidence, can it, that it's a rooster that reminds Peter of Jesus' prediction and his own failure. Think about it. What's a rooster known for? It's for their foolish pride. The rooster rules the roost and struts around as if he's the king of the world. The rooster's cocky, which is exactly what Peter was guilty of. Cocky boastfulness about how he would never deny Jesus, and yet he does. The rooster can't be a coincidence. It just can't be. As interesting, though, as those things are, uh, they really aren't what I want to major on today. Sitting here in the room this morning, uh, there are people who have failed uh, morally in many, many ways. Maybe your failures are sexual in nature. Maybe you failed sexually in some way. Maybe your failures are related to greed somehow. Maybe you have failed with pornography. Maybe there's a failed marriage in your past that as the years have passed by, you realize that you could have done a lot more to save that marriage than you did. Maybe you spent time in jail for a crime. Maybe in In retrospect, you weren't a very good dad or a mom, or at least as good a mom or a dad as you would like to have been. Maybe you abused your power in some way that deeply hurt someone else. 
Or maybe it's a chronic failure, something that you keep failing at over and over and over again. And in fact, maybe it was just yesterday that you last failed at it. And try as you might, you just can't see how God could ever accept you. Because you have a hard enough time accepting yourself. How could God ever accept me? Here's what I want to do this morning. I want you to see the horror of Peter's sin. I want you to see Peter's response to his sin. And then I want to show you why Peter could be freed from his sin. Let me say it again. I want you to see the horror of Peter's sin. I want you to see Peter's response to his sin. And then I want you to see why Peter could be freed from his sin. Because those of you who feel that you have done something, that you are such a failure because of something you've done in your past, or maybe it's in your present, and you think God could never accept you, I want you to see what God does through a man who had failed as horribly as Peter. Let's start with uh, the horror of Peter's sin. I want you to look back at verse 71 again. And I want you to look at how the text describes Peter's uh, last denial, his third denial of Jesus. The text says this, that he began to call down curses, and he swore to them. I'll tell you what, you know what, before I go any further, I want to, before I finish that, uh, I, just, I want to say a word of prayer because I've, you know, I think it's very easy when we come to something like this, um, I think it's very easy for you to just say, well, you know what, it's another Sunday, he's just going to talk for a while and then we're going to go home and for this not to penetrate deeply into your soul. And I know that there are people here this morning who need this, but maybe you don't have ears to hear this morning. I I just want to stop. I want to say a word of prayer that the Spirit of God would drive this deeply into your soul. Would you bow your heads with me and let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, it is another Sunday. It is very, very easy for us to just take this in stride. for all of the things that are on our minds throughout the week to cloud our minds this morning. Lord, I pray that you would give all of us today ears to hear and that your Spirit would do what I cannot do, and that is take your Word and move it deeply into the souls of the people here today. And I pray this, Lord, in Christ's name, amen. So let, let me just remind you here. We're going to talk about, we're talking about the horror of Peter's sin. We're looking back at verse 71. And I want you to see again how the text describes Peter's final denial of Jesus. It says that he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know this man that you're talking about. The NIV version of the Bible that I'm using this morning obscures the horror of Peter's denial of Jesus here. Remember that that he started simply by saying, I don't know this Jesus guy that you're accusing me of knowing. That's, That's how he started. But the third time, the NIV says that he began to call down curses. Now, this word curse is the Greek word Anathema. I don't know if any of you recognize that word, 
But that word anathema is the word that the Apostle Paul uses later on in the New Testament when he says that anyone who preaches a distorted, false version of the gospel should be cursed, anathema, by God. That's how serious this word is. There's nothing worse in all of the Bible than to be cursed by God. In fact, it's so horrible that the editors of the NIV could not bring themselves to say what Peter was doing here. And so they left this sort of ambiguous. What does it mean uh, that he just called down curses? What's, What's that all about? And you need to see this. By the way, the NIV is a wonderful translation of the Bible. I'm not trying to undermine that. I'm just saying that here in this, in this place, I think the, the editors tried, I think they just, in and of themselves, they just had to obscure this because they just couldn't believe how terrible this was. Okay? I want you to see this. Peter wasn't merely, when it says that he was calling down curses, it doesn't mean that he was merely using profanity here, like saying, you know, you blankety-blank people, I don't know Jesus. It's not, it's not like that. It's not profanity. And he also wasn't calling down curses on himself. We know this because of the form of the word anathema. It doesn't allow for Peter to be calling curses down on himself. No. There is only one person that Peter is calling for to be cursed by God. It's Jesus. He's calling for God to curse Jesus. No disciple would ever curse his master. And so Peter calls down curses from God on Jesus to prove to these people that he doesn't really, he doesn't know Jesus. Now, here's what you need to understand. Jesus once, uh, he once said this, listen to this. He said, whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father. That's how seriously Jesus takes the issue of disowning him. Now, not only did Peter disown Jesus once, he disowned him three times. Not only did he disown him three times, he also called down curses from God Upon Jesus. This man who has mentored Peter, who has built into Peter's life, who has honored him by calling him to be one of his disciples, uh, this man to whom Jesus has shown his deity. Uh, no, this, this is more serious than, than mere denial. This is the worst thing that Peter could possibly do in this moment. The minute the rooster crows, the horror of what he has done comes down on Peter with the force of a slab of concrete dropped from the top of a skyscraper. And what I want you to see is that Peter has failed in a way that is worse than any of you here this morning have failed. It it doesn't get worse than this. He has failed personally. He said he would never deny Jesus. He denied him three times. He's failed morally, he has lied, and he has failed spiritually. He has called down curses from God on the Son of God. And I'm sorry for those of you who think that you have the corner of the market this morning on horrible sins. You haven't done anything like this. Such is the horror of Peter's sin. Now what I want to do, I want to move on now to how Peter 
responds to his sin? What is Peter's response to his sin? And I have to tell you that as I was reading this passage this past week, I couldn't help but think about Judas. We saw last week that Judas betrayed Jesus, and here we see that Peter denies him in the worst way possible. However, Judas ends up committing suicide. And if you were to read on in the New Testament, you would see that at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus ends up restoring Peter. And Peter becomes one of the primary leaders of the first century church. Now here's the question that I found myself asking. Why is it that Judas' sin is so horrible that he ends up killing himself, while on the other hand, Peter gets restored and essentially promoted? What's that all about? Christ died for both men. Do you realize that? I mean, he died for Judas. He died for Judas's sin of betrayal. And he died for Peter's sin of denial. But the outcomes of both men are so profoundly different. Why is that the case? And I think that the, the answer lies in how the two of these men responded to their sin. And I'll, let me show you what I mean. For instance... While Judas committed suicide after his sin, Peter broke down and he wept bitter tears of failure. Uh, Judas, after his sin, determined his own judgment, suicide, while Peter accepted the judgment of God for his sins. Judas put an end to himself, while on the other hand, Peter experienced what God did to put an end to self-atonement. For Judas, failure was the ultimate hopelessness, while for Peter, failure was the fertile soil of ultimate hopefulness. See, there's, a, there's a significant difference between how the two of these men respond to their sin, respond to their failure. And then there's, there's something else that I want you to know about, but you wouldn't see on the surface of this uh, text. Those of you who've been uh, with us throughout this series, I mean, like all the way back to last year when we did the first half of the Gospel of Mark. You, uh, maybe you've noticed this, that there's really never anything that happens in the book of Mark that Peter isn't uh, present for. I don't know if you noticed that. Okay? And then also, you may have noticed this, that, that Mark refers to Peter proportionately more than any of the other three Gospels. And then there's, there's also this. In verse 66, I want you to notice what Mark uh, says. And this is, this is important for you to see. He says, While Peter was below uh, in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. I emphasized that word below. He's below the courtyard. Now, I don't know if you know this, but this is the only gospel account that mentions that Jesus' trial happened on a second floor. And you're like, so what? What's the big deal about that? Well, let me ask you something. Why would one person mention a very specific detail about a story that other people don't mention? Well, it's because that one person was actually there. Like the other people weren't there. They don't know all of the details. But, but the person who was there knows every single detail. Eyewitnesses tell details that other people couldn't know. Now, if you add all of this up, here's what you get. Mark's account 
of Jesus' life and death is the eyewitness testimony of Peter. In other words, Peter told Mark, here's how it went down. Tell this story. And Mark wrote Peter's story. Which means that after Peter had experienced, you know, I told you later on, he's going to be in John chapter 21, he's going to be restored by Jesus. After Peter was restored, Peter told this story of his own horrible failure on himself. He said, Mark, write down this story of how badly I failed. Write it down. I want everybody to know it. Why would he want everybody to know it? He wanted us to know it for our benefit. As I said, in John chapter 21, a few days after this horrible failure on Peter's part, Jesus is risen from the grave, and he calls Peter to, call, to come to him. It's the first time that Peter's seen him. He calls Jesus to come to Jesus calls Peter to come to him. Three times Jesus asks Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? He's talking about the other disciples. Because you remember, when Peter had uh, told Jesus that he wasn't going to fail, he said, he pointed, Peter pointed to all the other disciples, all the other 11 guys, because even if all these guys, because they're losers, even if they fail, even if they deny you, I'm never going to because I am Peter and I'm better than these guys. And Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me more than these other guys? Do you love me more than these disciples? Three times Jesus asks Peter that question for each time that Peter had denied him. And each time Peter essentially says, no, I don't, I don't love you more than these guys. And after each time Peter admits that, Jesus says to Peter, this is, uh, this is counterintuitive. After each time he says, I, I, no, I failed. I really don't love you more than all of these guys. I love you, but not more. Jesus says to him, lead my church. Lead my church. And so Peter is speaking to us through Mark about his own failure. Because he wants us to understand that despite the horror of his sin, Christ forgave him, but more than that, Christ restored him. And precisely because of the horror of his failure, Peter became the greatest first century leader of Christ's church. Peter wants us to understand that nothing can make you a better leader, a better witness to Christ, a better friend, a better mother, a better father, a better follower of Christ than to repent of your failures and let them be absorbed into the grace of God. And so he tells on himself in order to, to inspire those of us who have done things that we can't possibly believe that God could accept us, forgive us, want us to be his follower, use us in any way. He says, He tells us this to inspire us to do the very same thing, to repent and to let it all be absorbed into God's grace. On the other hand, what more do we hear from Judas about his failure? We don't hear a word because Judas committed suicide. See, the difference between the outcome of these two men's lives is the difference between grace and self-condemnation. Peter plunged his failures into God's grace, Judas refused to accept that very grace, and he condemned himself to death. And you see, this is the very reason 
that some of you just cannot get past your own failures in the past or in the present. The reason that some of you have even allowed your failures to become your identity, the way you think about yourself, the reason is because you insist, like Judas, on self-condemnation. Now listen to me on this. This is true. This is true of some of you here today who have never responded to God's grace. You refuse to accept His grace. You're, maybe you're too proud to, to break down and to weep like Peter. You're pr- too proud maybe to accept that, that nothing you could ever do would be enough to atone for your own sin. And so you try to self-atone through self-improvement plans. I'll never do it again. I'll join AA, which is good, by the way, to join AA. But I'm going to join AA. I'll never drink again. I'll never do that again. I'll, I'll stop. I promise I'll stop. And none of that self-improvement stuff seems to work for very long, does it? So it's true for some of you who've never accepted the grace of God, but it's also true, I'm going to tell you something, this, this whole thing about how you handle failure, like Judas, it's also true of some of you who have already believed in Christ. You accepted God's grace many years ago. But since then, after accepting the grace that comes through the death of Jesus Christ, you refuse now, on this side of the cross, you refuse to believe that He can keep offering you that grace. And so you live now your life on the basis of your performance. When you're up, great. When, things are, when you fail, you're bad. God doesn't love you anymore. He loves you. He doesn't love you. And so you live your life on this constant thing. You self-condemn rather than plunge your failures into God's grace. You handle your sin like Judas instead of like Peter. You self-condemn. You wallow in guilt. You wade in shame. You sentence yourself to life without parole from your sin. You try to self-atone by making promises to yourself about self-improvement. And then when you fail again and again and again, you choke the life out of your soul by repeated self-condemnation. And so you become locked in this cycle, this cycle of death and despair. Fail, self-condemn, feel guilt and shame, promise to improve, and then back to failure again. And then the cycle repeats itself over and over and over again. Both of you, the person who's never responded to the grace of God and the person who has, need to know, you need to understand something. God has never been interested in your self-condemnation. And He's never been interested in your self-atonement or your self-improvement. Psalm 51, verse 17, listen to this. My sacrifice, the writer of the psalm says, my sacrifice, O God, is a self-improvement program. I'll never do it again. My sacrifice, O God, is that I'm going to self-atone. I'm going I'm to beat myself up with guilt and, and, and shame, and I'm going to wallow in all of that. Mm-mm. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. Did you notice what the text said in verse 72 at the very end? It said, Peter doesn't just weep. It says that he breaks down and weeps. He, he disintegrates. All of his pride, all of his brash confidence, the very foundation of, his, uh, of the life that he has built, it's all broken down, and his tears 
or his recognition that there's nothing that he can do to fix what he has just done, nothing that he can do to atone for it, nothing he can do to improve himself. He needs God here to do what Peter cannot do. This is what a broken spirit and a contrite heart looks like. And soon, that man will become the pivotal leader of Christ's church. And one day, because of what God has done in him to restore him, he will stand tall in the face of death, and he will himself be crucified for his belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what am I saying here? I'm saying this, enough, enough with the self-condemnation and the self-atonement through self-improvement. Enough with all of that stuff. The difference between a person who comes out on the other side of failure, free of their failure, and changed by it for the better. The difference between that person and the person who remains in their failure is plunging your failures into God's grace rather than wallowing in the self-condemnation of your failures. That's the difference. That's the difference. Now, here's my last point. Why? Why could Peter be freed from his sin, from his moral failure? And really, I guess, really the question is, why can you be freed from your sin? Why can God demonstrate grace toward you? The reason, Peter, that could be be freed from his sin and the reason that you can be freed from yours is simply because Jesus traded places with Peter and he traded places with you. In this passage, Peter is being charged with something that is very true, that he's a disciple. While Jesus, in the previous passage, in the trial that he's in, is being charged with something which wasn't true, that he was blasphemous. But while Peter the guilty goes free, Jesus the innocent gets condemned. The reason that Jesus can see us not for what we have been, but for for what we can be in the future. The reason that Jesus can restore us after failure and free us of our failure, becoming our identity. And the reason that Jesus can even turn us into something great is the cross of Jesus Christ. On the cross. Jesus plunged himself into the fire of God's wrath so that we could be warmed by the fire of God's grace. Jesus became our substitute on the cross so that God's justice could be executed upon him for our sins and so that we could be justified in Christ. That's why it could happen. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice, that there's nothing in there about your self-atonement. Nothing in there about your self-improvement. Christianity isn't about you. It's about Jesus. Christianity is an instruction about what you have to do in the future to get right with God. Christianity is news about what Jesus Christ did in the past. That's the gospel. Uh, some of you know I'm from Dallas, at my church back in Dallas. My wife and I had a good friend of ours who had had an abortion uh, many years before we had even met her. She'd gotten pregnant before she was married, chose to abort the child. And for years, no, no matter how much she tried to proclaim that she was free to do with her body whatever she wanted to do, you know, like, like the culture says, 
No matter how much she tried to proclaim that to herself, she had been tormented by her own guilt and shame about the abortion. She knew the date of the abortion, and each year she remembered. And each year she self-condemned herself to a fresh new round of shame and guilt and unworthiness. Until someone introduced her to Christ and what he had done for her on the cross. And there at the cross, she finally found relief for all of that guilt and all of that shame and all of that uh, unworthiness. She finally realized that Jesus' blood covered her sin of having her child aborted in the same way that it covered Peter's sin of calling curses down upon Jesus. And what's fascinating is that after experiencing Christ's forgiveness, she was changed. In fact, so much so that she wanted to help other women just like her who had also had abortions. She wanted to help them find the same forgiveness and healing that she had found. And so she started in our church an abortion recovery group through which dozens and dozens of women just like her found hope and healing through Jesus Christ. Like Peter She plunged her sin into God's grace and she came out better on the other side with a mission for others just like her. I guess you could say that she was a real-life Maggie who had a heart for other Maggies. What burden are you carrying around this morning? What, What sin is it that you can't accept Christ's death on the cross for? It's time to stop. Enough with the self-condemnation. Enough with the self-atonement through self-improvement. Hey, that doesn't make you a really sincere person. In fact, what it makes you is an arrogant person who refuses to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ and what Christ did on the cross for you. Enough with all of that stuff. You're You're not proving to God your remorse. You're not doing anything. Other than saying, God, I I, I reject the gospel. Enough with all of that. Enough. And would you just plunge your sin into God's grace? And watch what he does in you. And see if it's not true that he makes you a better mother, a better father, a better follower of Christ a better leader, a better witness for Jesus Christ. But it begins with plunging your sin into God's grace. Would you do that even this morning? If you would, bow your heads with me. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to pull up on on the... uh, movie screen of your mind. I, I want you to pull up whatever your sin is, wh- whatever it is. Whatever your sins are, whatever it is that you've done that you feel like, you know, God just couldn't possibly accept me. And I want you to imagine an ocean, and I want you to imagine taking that sin and just throwing it into the ocean of God's grace. Just, just plunge that into God's grace. And for those of you who've never come to a place where you've uh, placed your 
faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, today would be a great day to do it. Privacy of your seat. Just say, Jesus, I bring you my sin, and I believe that because of what you did on the cross, my sin is forgiven. All of my sins, past, present, future, they're all forgiven. Be my Lord and Savior. For those of you who know Jesus, you've already accepted Christ. But you now, uh, once you came to the cross of Christ, now you live your life like on the basis of performance. Would you just now, whatever your sin pattern struggles are that you feel like are so horrible, would you plunge them into God's grace right now? And would you stop the self-condemnation and all of the self-atonement and instead of wallowing in guilt and shame, would you rejoice with joy over what Christ has done for you and that you are freed from that sin and from every sin. Lord Jesus Christ, in our arrogance, we like Peter, we want to believe that we're capable of things that we are incapable of, including atoning for our own sins. This morning, Lord Jesus, would you drive this truth home that your cross, your death on the cross is enough. It is finished at the cross. And because of your resurrection, we know that that you are who you said you are, the Lord of the universe, the Savior of the world, the Messiah. And for those that have never trusted you, would you bring them to a place today that they would believe in you and what you did on the cross? And for those who have, Lord, would you just drive this home more? And would you give them a new life, a new freedom, a new sense of joy because of what you did. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.